And uh, it is always a blessing, to me at least, when Robert Knuth, uh, he's the RUF pastor of Reform University Fellowship, is able to preach for us. Robert's been a great blessing to me um, just as a friend and a brother in Christ. And I know he's been a blessing to our presbytery as well through the work of RUF. And I know it's a blessing to Michigan too. It's amazing what God is doing on the campus uh, we just have to say amen, right? It's what God is doing in the hearts and lives of many students. And I know students that attend Christ Church here would say the same thing. Um, we serve an amazing God. So, brother, we're excited that you're bringing the word to us this morning. Come and show us Jesus. Thanks, man. Thanks, Jeremy. I think what uh, Jeremy, um, uh, in his heart, uh, forgot to mention is that as much as... I'm on campus laboring. Um, I have an incredible group of students, uh, many of whom are here today. Um, and God has provided uh, students who are leading, serving, have a heart for Jesus. And so uh, if that's you this morning, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to hear a sermon that maybe you've heard before. Uh, like Jeremy said, <laughs> my name is Robert Knuth. Uh, Good morning. I'm so glad you're here, uh, especially if you haven't been to church in a while or uh, this is kind of a new thing. Maybe you've been around and you're, you're questioning why you even come to church. Really grateful you're here. One of the things I say in RUF is that the reason we're here, the reason kind of we wake up early and, you know, get our kids ready for church and um, maybe you don't have kids just setting that alarm, you know, when you could so easily sleep in, is that I tell my students that we're a community. I mean, that's literally what church means in Greek, is, is community, ecclesia. Like, we're a community that is learning how to love. Uh, a community that's learning how to love God. Obviously, we're learning how to love ourselves. We're learning how to love uh, each other. And then we're learning how to love this beautiful place that we call Ann Arbor. Um, and so... We're here and we're, we're figuring that out together. And so I'm um, really glad, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, that you're here with us this morning figuring that out. Um, so with that said, uh, I'm excited to dive into John 1 this morning. This comes from a, a series I did with the students this past fall called The Life of Peter. And this was the very first sermon. So uh, I'm excited to bring it this morning. Um, let us go to the Lord in prayer. And um, I'll read our, our scripture. Father in heaven, thank you um, that you have washed us with your blood. Thank you for the magnificence of Jesus and that we join the saints of old um, in worshiping around your throne room this morning. Thank you that you call us into worship, that you preserve your word for us, that we might hear from you. Uh, what a privilege that is. And so I, I pray because of your magnificence and your glory that you would help me to get out of the way this morning. That these uh, people before me would behold Jesus, the slain lamb whose blood was shed for the remission of sins, the complete and full remission of sins. And would we believe that that power actually uh, is at work within your people, within your church, and that that power um, is that work to change us, to make us the people, uh, the church that you intend us to be. We want to be a, a bright city on a hill uh, for Ann Arbor, um, not because we are lovely, not because we have anything to offer, but because you love us and your love is so magnificent. And so help us to believe that to be true, especially maybe within a week where we don't feel lovable. <laughs> but Jesus... Um, 
come and minister to our wounds uh, and be with us this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, John 1, 35 through 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Hashtag Bama Rush. Have you seen it? You might have, uh, maybe if you're of the younger generation especially. Uh, 55.7 million TikTok users at one point turned into what nine months ago was like a raging national phenomenon. Um, just in case you're like me and you're like, I don't even know what TikTok is, um, I had to Google what this was all about. Uh, hashtag Bama Rush was this week-long saga in mid-August where grown men and grown women with corporate jobs and families were on the edge of their seats to see if Hannah was going to get a bid to Zeta. It's a sorority. <laughs> right? It was like a TikTok reality TV show. And I think what's interesting was reading after um, kind of the comments of these article, this article, and uh, I was asking the question myself, like, why is this a thing? Why do people care so much about, you know, a teenage girl and what she does with her life on a college campus thousands of miles away. And so I was reading the comments, and um, some news sources, you know, were pointing to the inherent, like, racist and misogynistic history of some of these southern fraternities and sororities. But, like, it didn't even seem to matter to people, right? They continued to tune in. Um, and so listen to what 29-year-old Jen Ficara of Los Angeles um, this is what she wrote. I think she, I think she put it really well. She said, it's kind of nice to forget a minute at a time that the world is ending. End quote. Um, I like Jen. Uh, she seems like to be very honest about how she's feeling. Um, I wonder how she would respond if I asked her, you know, what do you want from hashtag Mamma Rush? What do you want to forget? Not going to presume I know, I know Jen at all, right, other than what NBC told me about her. Um, but if Jen is like you and me, of course she doesn't want to forget. I think she says that, right, she wants to forget because she doesn't actually know what she wants. Forgetting is easier than being left in a place of existential dread over, over who I am and why my life isn't what it is or what I want it to be. What it's all for. And here's the rub, right? Like, are you and me any different? Do you know what you want out of life? I know it's like a big existential question to ask. And maybe you know exactly what you want. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. And that's great, right? But I imagine that uh, a lot of you, even if you might maybe have a general idea about what you want, 
Um, you don't know what that's going to look like. It's the reason why you dream about your future 10 years from now, what you're going to be doing, are you going to have kids, what they're going to be like. It's the reason why you fantasize over your weekend plans. And again, right, like it might be the reason you're here this morning. Let's try Christianity and see what that does. And so as we kind of look at this snapshot at the beginning of, of Peter's life, as, as we see him in the Gospels, Obviously, he's a grown man, but this is our, our kind of first snapshot at Peter. We're going to be looking at a man who, right, time and again, proves just how much he does not know what he wants. Right, throughout church history, people have been drawn to Peter, I think, for this exact reason. Right, he's the friend you have who, like, blurts out what everybody in the room might be thinking or feeling, um, but doesn't want to say out loud, you know. Uh, it's refreshing to hear Peter interact with Jesus because he says the thing where you're like, wow, I can't believe he said that. But also, like, who would say that? Can't believe he said that. Peter, what are you doing? We're going to hide you. All right? He's bold, he's confused, and he's deeply insecure. And it's this man, right? It's this man that for the first time is brought to Jesus in John one forty two. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this encounter with Jesus. We're going to be looking at it through Peter's perspective. Who is Jesus? What is he like? What does he do? And perhaps the question on many of your minds is, uh, what does it mean for my life living 2,000 years later? Why should I care? And so in order to unpack all of this, I'm just going to put two points before you this morning. Is uh, the question... And the invitation, the question and the invitation. First, the question. What are you seeking? These are the first recorded words that we actually have out of Jesus' mouth. Right? Not listen here, look at me, do this. The Son of Man came and he begins his ministry by asking a question. So, for context, I know this is always tough when we just pick up a random paragraph of a random book of the Bible. For context, um, this is now the third day that John the Baptist has borne testimony to Jesus. On Monday, he tells the Jews in verses 26 and 27, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. On Tuesday, he sees Jesus walking along and bears direct witness to him by crying out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then on Wednesday, right, he's standing with his disciples and again looks at Jesus and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. So at this point, two of his disciples have have heard enough. They start to follow Jesus. They're intrigued by Jesus. Right? You could say that he's appeared on their Discover page of Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Enough at this point. Enough people are talking about Jesus at this point that they begin to inquire and see what all the big fuss is about. What's the big deal? Jesus sees them coming his way, right? And he could have done a lot of things. He could have performed some crazy miracle to like prove that he was really who John was talking about. He could have dropped some crazy knowledge on them um, to prove that he was really worth their time. He could have tried to hide, <laughs> Just hope that they left him alone. But instead, the text says he turns, he sees them coming, and he asks a question. What are you seeking? 
I think these two disciples' response is, is honestly just kind of hilarious. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've read John 1. And the weirdness of their response always confuses me. Right? You have Jesus asking this super deep existential question. And they respond with a question about where he's staying. Like, can you imagine going to lunch with one of your friends and uh, asking them some question about their personal life? Only for them to respond, yeah, uh, where do you live? It's like they didn't hear your question. Or, or maybe they're choosing to ignore it, right? What's, what's going on in this interaction? Here's what's going on. The disciples don't know what they're seeking. They don't know what answer to give Jesus. I think if they did give an answer to Jesus, if I were to presume, it would probably be something like, I'm following you, man, because people think you're interesting, and we just kind of want to know what the big deal is about. Because even in first century Palestine, right, that would have probably been a little creepy, right? Um, so instead of giving the creepy answer, they ask where he's staying because they just, they want to investigate further. They want to keep going. They want to see more. It's like, it's like they see one clip of hashtag Bama Rush and they start searching more. What's behind this hashtag? So just like an online viral video that you just have to see, nothing in that moment is more interesting to them than investigating the person of Jesus. Their curiosity consumes them. Any responsibilities that they might have had, like finding food or dinner, are thoughtlessly put off until later. They have a one-track mind of stalking this guy wherever he is going. And they, they don't even know why. And so the question I have of the text this morning is, well, who does that? And I think when I was a skeptic in college, when I wasn't a Christian, I would read stuff like this and think, oh, well, that's just like what religious people did back in the day because they didn't have anything to do. And then just kind of continue reading. Like, it just doesn't phase how I read the Bible. But here's the reality. You do that. You do that. You do crazy stuff like work through dinner because you have the one-track mind of just getting ahead in your career, whatever the cost. You do crazy stuff like driving your kids all around town because you have the one-track mind of giving them the best education, whatever the cost, right? Like you do crazy stuff like work corporate, you know, go corporate happy hours and mom get-togethers because you have a one-track mind of making friends, whatever the cost. And just so we're clear, right, those are all great things. They're amazing things. I'm, I'm not, this is not me bashing those things. My point is, you do crazy religious things where your curiosity consumes you, and you just want to follow whatever person, thing, or experience that is going to be the most interesting to you. And Jesus' question to you is the same question he gives to his disciples, or to these two randos. He says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking when you move to Ann Arbor and raise a family? What are you seeking when you absolutely can't stop watching that TV show? I was up way too late last night. What are you seeking when you read your Bible? What are you seeking when you join a church? What are you seeking? Maybe you're like our friend Jen from earlier, and you're just trying to forget. You're just trying to distract yourself enough so that you don't have to think about your life. 
Maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe that's what you're seeking. But I think if I'm being honest with myself in those moments, I'm more times than not, right, just seeking something that's interesting. Something that's going to capture my attention because, again, more times than not, my life feels lame. I want something that's going to spice things up. So Jesus' response to this weird response from the disciples and their confusion and bewilderment, not with an answer that sends them packing. I'm not living anywhere, man. Leave me alone. Right? He doesn't give them an answer, but he follows up their question with an invitation that, that strings along their curiosity and wonder. In verse 39, he says, Come, and you will see. Come, and you will see. So this moves me to my second point for this morning, which is looking at the invitation that Jesus gives them. The end of verse 39 reads, So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That detail about it being the tenth hour, I think, changes how you read the entire passage. You can really easily miss it, right? In Jesus' Palestine, time was counted from sunrise to sunset. So the tenth hour is another way of saying it was about 4 p.m. It was almost dinner time. Right? Implied here is that like within a culture that shuts down when the sun sets, there's no streetlights, right? Culture shuts down when the sun sets. There's this implied reality that the day is almost over, and so not only is it time to find dinner and something to eat, but it's also time to find shelter. Because again, how are you going to make your way around life in old school Palestine? In other words, right, verse 39 is communicating to us that these two disciples went to have dinner with Jesus and more than likely crashed wherever he was that night. So Jesus' invitation, come and see it, is really an invitation for his disciples to grab a meal with him, to be with him. The Bible has a lot to say about food. I wish I could get into. It's, it's great. It's glorious. But please catch here. Please catch here that there's, no, there's nothing spectacular going on. Right? He doesn't invite them over for magic tricks. doesn't have, like, YouTube performing in the background. He isn't cooking a five-star meal. This is an ordinary meal on ordinary night with the most extraordinary person the world has ever seen. And given that background, verses 40 and 41 are mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Andrew, who was one of the two to go off with Jesus, he comes back and he finds his brother Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. And so maybe for y'all who come to church a lot, maybe grew up in the church, you're, you're churchy people, you might be thinking, yeah, well, I'd say the same thing if I interacted with Jesus. Just what you say is Jesus. But I want to ask you, right, like, but what about your interaction with Jesus would let you know that he was the Messiah? Again, put yourself in their shoes. We know Jesus is the Messiah. We've read the scriptures, but what is it? What tips his hand, you could say? Right? He hasn't performed any miracles up, uh, uh, at this point. 
you just got invited for, you know, pretty average food, and then you probably slept on a rock. What are you going off that's going to let you know that this is the guy who has come to redeem Israel? I want to suggest that whatever caused Andrew to run to his brother and exclaim, we have found the Messiah, it's actually put on full display in verse 42. So Andrew drags his brother Simon along to encounter this, this same Jesus, you know, the guy who made ordinary food, sleeps on a rock, nowhere to stay. Andrew drags Simon along, and this time there are no questions. There are no invitations. Uh, there isn't really even that much of a dialogue, you could say. The text says that Jesus says, or he, he does two things. First, he, he looked at him. He looked at him. A lot of you are looking at me right now. Maybe some are half asleep. Some of you guys are looking at me and, and you're wondering, well, so what? That's what a lot of people do when they talk to each other. You know, <laughs> you look at each other. What's the big deal? Not Jesus. Not the Son of Man. Jesus' gaze in, in verse 42 is one of complete knowing. It's one of complete understanding. It's, it's one that says, I see you. I see all of you. I'm not scared of it. It's actually the same word in Greek that Luke uses in chapter 22 of his gospel when Peter has denied him three times and, and uh, he turns and sees the Lord look at him. And Peter goes off weeping and he's filled with shame. Um, it's the same word in Greek that Luke uses for looked. John's using it here as Jesus looked at Simon. And so, so first, J- Jesus sees Peter, all of Peter, all right, and then he says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which, which means Peter. I think a couple things are worth noting here. The first is, right, Peter is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Andrew, who is mentioned only one other time in John's Gospel. Andrew, who definitely doesn't play the role that Peter will soon play in the story of the early church. But what John wants you to see is that when you encounter Jesus, whoever you are, you automatically become a bringer. Your intrigue and uncontainable excitement cause you to go home and to bring other people to encounter Jesus. So that's the first thing to note. The second is, in this moment where Jesus looks at Peter and knows him completely, Jesus gives him an identity. He gives him a name. Jesus mentions who Peter is currently, but also, and more importantly, the man that Peter's going to become as he follows this Jesus. Jesus is going to take an ordinary man with the most ordinary name at the time, Simon. And he's going to turn him into the rock. Right? Like, Peter wasn't actually a name in Jesus' time. Uh, It was an object. It was like naming your kid Chair. Nobody called their son Peter. Like, my wife and I do. Um, Right? This is more than a nickname or a name change. Jesus right now in, in this verse is performing 
what I want to argue is the first miracle he actually performs. I know he changes water into wine in John 2. We can, you know, this isn't much of an argument as much as it is to get you to see that, like, there is a miracle happening right before you in this text. He's going to turn this average Joe with an average job, living a boring average life, into someone he's going to use to build his church upon. Forgive me for stating the obvious, but it's the type of encounter that forever changes you. From Peter's perspective, this was everything he always wanted to hear. You mean my life means more than just catching fish and going home and being with my wife and kids? There's something more to that? Right? He hears in not so many words, I see you, I know you, and I plan to change you. Right? Jesus has added that spark to the life that Peter's trying to forget. Peter doesn't really know what he wants, or even what he should be seeking. And yet, it's in this moment that Jesus seeks him. He knows him, and he gives him more than anything he could ever dream of. I was reading, um, I've been doing a relationship series this semester with my college students, and I was reading this psychological study that was done in the 1970s, where researchers did this experiment on um, intimacy in relationship, whether that be friendship, romance, whatever. Um, and this one study worked so well that two of the assistants who were participating in the study actually fell in love and got married. And so as, as you can imagine, right, like um, journalists were obsessed with this, this study. They, um, there, there have been multiple renditions of this. Uh, the most recent one was in the New York Times in January, uh, I think it was a, an article from January 9th, 2015. You can Google it. It's called 36 Questions That Lead to Love. Questions start out on a pretty surface level with ones like, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? All right, so not so bad. Um, then they escalate right, to become more and more personal, and this is the last question. It's share a personal problem and ask your partner's advice on how he or she might handle it. Also, ask your partner to reflect back to you, how you seem to be feeling about the problem you have chosen. All right, so you kind of get the picture, right, how this, how this study works. I tell you about this experiment mostly because how it ends. After asking each other these intense 36 questions, the experiment ends, you ready for this? The experiment ends by staring into each other's eyes for four minutes. Four minutes! I don't think I've ever like stared at my wife for more than 45 seconds, like four minutes. Crazy. Here's what one author commented about it. She said, two minutes is enough just to be terrified. Four really goes somewhere. Four really goes somewhere. I find it interesting that the text in verse 42, never mentions how long Jesus looks at Peter. There's no way of knowing, right? We're in the the realm of speculation here. But I like to imagine that the gaze of Jesus was long enough that it probably caused Peter to squirm a little bit. Because nobody does that. Nobody does that. The security of Jesus must have been mesmerizing to behold. 
I mean, I, I want you to imagine for a second a man who has never experienced shame. Um, unfortunately, if we get together, you know, I'm, I'm going to be very quick to look off. So who I am, broken sinner. Not the Lamb of God, not Jesus Emmanuel. A man who never experienced shame, completely confident and secure enough to look at another man for a somewhat long period of time. But I also have to imagine that Peter squirms because it's the gaze of Jesus that begins to reorient and reshape how he thinks about everything. In other words, right, like it's transformative. Completely and utterly transformative. And hopefully you're tracking with me now that no matter what you believe or who you are, why you're here, you are seeking, you are seeking to be known and loved to the point that like it's going to change you. You want to be known and loved so badly because you can't stand the dehumanizing and crippling loneliness that you currently feel. You want to be known and loved so badly that you can't stand the superficiality and fake platitudes of, of a lot of religious claims. You want to be known and loved so badly that you will quite, do, you will quite literally do anything in your life to achieve it. Friends, I want you to see, like, as awesome as romance is, as awesome as this study, you know, and people falling in love and getting married, as cool as that might be, it doesn't have the power to scratch that divine itch. And it doesn't have to be romance, right? Like I said, it could be deep friendships. It could be an award-winning resume. It could be the quintessential family life with the house and the white picket fence. Whatever it is, your life will always go back to that unsatisfying, boring existence right afterwards, and you're going to be stuck scrolling the Facebook homepage of your life, curious to find the next interesting thing. The thing that you hope is finally, you know, the interesting thing that's going to change you. You're going to be looking for it the rest of your life, I promise you. I'm only 30, and I can say that very definitively. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes to you this morning right now, and he looks at you, he sees you, and he says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, but you will be called my rock. I plan to change you by my love. Platitudes do not change people. Love changes people. I plan to build upon what I intend to start or already have started. You will not leave me unchanged. Glorious things await you. A faith that believes this to be true is the most exciting existence you could ever have because you don't know. You don't know what King Jesus has in store and how he plans to change you. You might think you do. Talk to some of the older Christians in the room. I can guarantee you they will tell you they have surprised. He has surprised them. He has surprised them by how he has changed them over time. Jesus is issuing you this invitation. It's like it's Christmas Eve. And you don't know what Santa has laid for you underneath the tree. But here's the thing. Don't you want to find out? Jesus says to you, come and you will see. Church, brothers and sisters, 
Jesus is issuing you an invitation to follow him deeper in the community. What does that look like for our church? I don't know. Jesus is issuing you an invitation to follow him into the recesses of his heart for Ann Arbor, that he actually loves Ann Arbor. That Ann Arbor isn't like a scary place for him. He has moved toward Ann Arbor. And what does that look like for our engagement with the culture? We don't have to be scared of Ann Arbor. We can love Ann Arbor. Jesus is issuing you an invitation to be surprised at what you might find in corporate worship on Sunday morning because, again, you don't know. You don't know how he intends to meet you here on a very ordinary Sunday and very ordinary hour. You don't know how he intends to meet you here and ultimately change us to be the people and the church that he intends for us to be. Come and you will see. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, oh man, I confess to you uh, my own cynicism. That I, uh, I don't hear come and you will see. I hear come and you might see. I hear come and maybe you will see. I do not hear come and you will see. Lord, would you give your people this morning a, an expectant heart? a confident heart that we would um, boldly and triumphantly move out into our lives expectant of miracles to be happening right before us in our own lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our, our family. And not only just the insular kind of church community, but would we be expectant to see our neighbors come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because you've promised a harvest that we can boldly and in love move toward our neighbors and move toward our friends and uh, to not feel like we have to change them, to not feel like we have to assert ourselves, but we can move forward in love asking questions like you did. We can move forward in love uh, being patient with them like you are patient with us. We can move forward in love expectant to see something miraculous because you have promised. And would we believe your promises to be true? Embolden us, Lord. Help give us hearts that uh, actually are, are beating and alive this morning and want nothing more than to come and to follow you. Give us a holy curiosity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.